Good morning, Redeemer. How are we doing? All right, so what if we would answer that question not based on how we actually feel, but how we wish we felt in this season? How are we doing? I think we can still work on that a little bit, but it's good to be together here this morning. My name is Chad, and I am an elder candidate here at Redeemer, and it is my joy to bring you God's word for today. And um, we're going to be continuing our series here today in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 9 through 12. Um, my kids are going to laugh when I give this open illustration. But uh, when the indie group, pop group, uh, Fun, led by Nathan Roos, uh, popped to worldwide attention and topped the charts in 2012, I know eight years ago is a long time in cultural moments, but when you're 40, it feels like yesterday. And uh, even I, when this happened, not exactly known for my hipness, uh, paid attention and began to listen to the song because it's a really cool sounding song. And for months uh, that year, their album was played everywhere. We are young and some nights playing on the airway, the airwaves everywhere. If you have no idea what I'm talking about or who I'm talking about, I guarantee that nevertheless, you've heard the beat to some nights played behind some Southwest Airlines or a Chevy ad during the Super Bowl, and you would hear it and go, "Ha! Huh, I think I've, I've heard that before. The title track, Some Nights, is to me the, cool, the coolest sounding song. It feels like the natural evolution of 70s arena rock, which you have to say is awesome. And the sound is wide and grandiose. It melds rock guitar with a marching band and an electric sound machine and a bit of hip-hop lyrics in the background. And Nathan Roos's voice just soars. This is an incredible vocalist. And the vocals sound like a choir singing an anthem. And I understand the, pop, uh, the risks of, of taking pop music too seriously. But nevertheless, every time it's played, it's the song, it's one of those songs that I have to listen through to the end. I never, I never skip it. I never go next. I play it all the way to the end, and sometimes I hit it, and I go back and play it again. It's the sound, but, but underneath, the lyrics reveal a personal crisis of meaning, or as big and bold as the sound is. So the lyrics are as dark and personal. The song opens up with these verses. Some nights I stay up cashed in my back, bad luck. Some nights I call it a draw. Some nights I wish that my lips could build a castle. Some nights I wish they'd just fall off. But I still wake up. I still see your ghost. Oh Lord, I'm, ne- I'm still not sure what I stand for. Oh, what do I stand for? What do I stand for? Most nights I don't know anymore. The New York Times said at the time that the song is about a young man who is far from home and experiencing this deep existential crisis and angst, which is confirmed by just reading the lyrics of the song and later by the the writer uh, in the interview. At the center, like so many songs, right, so many pop songs, is a lost relationship. He sings, I still see your ghost. But something deeper is behind that. In the second verse, when he's singing, he, he, he talks about attempting to cover up the search for meaning with a night, a one night of pleasure. And he admits that she stops my bones from wondering just 
who I am, who I am, who I am. Oh, who am I? And then it goes even a little bit deeper in, in the backdrop, like towards the end. There's just these sort of words that are spoken. And the, one, of the, one of the lines is, when I see stars, when I see stars, that's all they are. And so he's at this moment where if he's being honest with his feelings, when he sees things, that's, that's all that there is. What you see is, what is, is all that there is. So I've always liked this song, but I've never been able to sing the song. And not just because it's not safe for family road trips, warning, it's not. I can understand the questions, but I cannot own its answers. Oh Lord, I'm still not sure what I stand for. It's exactly the opposite of the desired outcome that the writer of Hebrews, to which we turn, has for us at believers, as believers. It may be strange to provide an illustration of the opposite of our text, but it provides a kind of reverse backlight against which we can see what the writer of Hebrews is calling to us, and hopefully later it will be made clear. So I invite you today to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6 and stand for the reading of God's Word. The Holy Spirit, speaking through the writer of Hebrews, says, verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the certainty, the surety of better things. We're thankful, Lord, to be called the Beloved. I pray, Father, that you would challenge us and that you would comfort us from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. We thank you for the goodness and the greatness of the gospel. We pray that you would be glorified in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we have these four verses before us today. Before we dive into them, I think it's important to ask, where are we now in the book of Hebrews? Hebrews began with a soaring statement of the majesty of Jesus. And then it began to show how Christ is greater and better than all that came before, greater than Moses, greater than than Joshua. That the rescue and the rest that he offers is greater than what came before in the Old Covenant. And then the writer moved to an exposition of Psalm 95, the the key words of, of, of which are, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. And then he begins to unpack in chapter 5 how how Jesus is a great high priest. But he interrupts that explanation of Jesus as a great high priest with a searing word of warning in chapter 5 verse 11, which we've heard over the last couple weeks. And it, it is truly searing. It's a burning hot uh, exhortation. John Calvin says in his commentary on that passage that it's, that it's terrifying. 
And that brings us, that warning that proceeds that we heard about last week, brings us to verse 9 where we are today. And we find ourselves about halfway through Hebrews. And we find ourselves at sort of a little, a, a bit of a hinge. And there's a key word here that becomes a hinge uh, of the book. As I read over chapter 5, verse 11, which is, we didn't read today, but which begins with, about this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. And there's this word of exhortation and warning. And I read all the way through the end of today's passage uh, that we read today. As I was just reading over that over the last uh, week or so, over and over again, I must say that I, that I began to recognize the tone and the approach of these words. I realized that I have said similar words many, many times. And when I was a kid, I heard these words many, many times. Here's the two-step pattern from 5.11 to 6.12. He says in 5.11, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You ought to be teachers by now. And then in our passage today, he changes tone he says, though we speak in this way, in other words, though we speak with these, these harsh words, with these honest words of warning, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. And that's the key word, better. What do I mean? Well, haven't we said this, parents? Haven't we heard this Kids, and everyone's a kid from your parents. These are the words of a mother or a father to their children. How many times have you said, uh, uh, mom and dad, to your son or daughter, your child, your toddler, your, your eight-year-old, your 10-year-old, 12-year-old, teenager, you're not listening to me, <laughs> right? Or I would explain it, but you won't get it. Or you ought to be more mature than that. It gives me great comfort to know that an apostolic writer is using those words. Can every parent say amen? And the whole thing, both the warning and the encouragement are born out of love. As Hebrews will say later in chapter 12, verse 5, and he's quoting the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 11. He says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. This is what really got my attention about Hebrews chapter 6, 9, 12 as I was thinking about this. Not just about the words themselves, the words and unpacking the direct meaning, but just the example here of what it looks like to love and to speak words to one another. That there is a fatherly aspect to ministry. And when I say ministry, your mind may immediately leap to preachers and, and, and elders and people that you label ministers. But in the new covenant, we're all ministers. We are a priesthood of nations. We are priests to one another, taking one another uh, before God. And all of that kind of ministry has this fatherly aspect because it reflects the heart of God the Father. First, when it warns in love, and second, when it encourages in love. And you know, we often, we often like the love side of, the, of this kind of love, the encouragement side of this kind of love, and not the warning side. And we can think of words of warning and, 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 and words of exhortation and admonishment as, as being hateful or harsh. 
and words of compliments and kindness and, 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 um, and encouragement as loving. But, in, the, but, but in, in our role as disciples, in our role when we're children and as God's children, the word of warning and the word of encouragement are both the love of God. Amen. Having dealt with the warning in previous weeks today, it is my joy to be able to talk about the encouragement side of, of, of this passage. And what we find here is both sweet comfort for ourselves and a beautiful model for encouraging one another. So what do we see here? Well, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. First, his ministry of affirmation, he calls them beloved, which is the plural of of the adjective agape, or the noun agape, love in the Greek, two persons, agapetoi. In other words, you are the ones who are loved. You are beloved. Now, there are many layers to be, calling, to be called uh, in the term beloved in the New Testament. And I don't know if the writer means all of these here, but I was so excited uh, about the term beloved, and it moves my heart to realize that, that we are the beloved, that I, I just had to dive into all of these layers. On the personal level, the first level, it just means, it, it doesn't just mean, it means dear friends. And it may, means that kind of friend, like a, like, what you call it in the old days, bosom friends, like a, a close friend, a, a, dear, a dear friend. It's not just a friend, singular, it's plural. It, it means a joint beloved, to be in a company of friends, to be in a body of brothers and sisters, to be in a place of love to one another. And it points at the ultimate level, it points to the reality of the love of God the Father for his Son, whom he calls beloved. When Jesus is baptized and the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And all those who are joined by faith to Christ, therefore, who are in the Son, are also the beloved. And it echoes the way that Jesus speaks of his people in his prayer before he goes to the cross in John 17, where he says, Father, I am praying for them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We as the beloved are caught up into the very life of the three-person God who eternally loves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise God. That's what we are invited to, pulled into, called into as believers. Really, we're in it when we don't even feel like it. We are in that communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we are the beloved. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that when you speak to one another, that you speak to the beloved, and that we give words of warning and exhortation and counsel, we should do it as if to the beloved. And when we give words of encouragement and commendation and compliments and kindness and grace, we should do it as to the beloved. We're connected with one another and we're in communion with Christ and we're in communion with one another, the beloved of God. 
Second, he calls them beloved, but then he says that he thinks better of them. And he's not just assuming the best of them in the way that we tend to think of, I should assume the best. He is, in fact, confident of the best of them and for them. He says, beloved, we feel sure of better things for you. This is in spite of their dullness to hear. And it is a glorious example of speaking the good word of the gospel to one another. This is a beautiful example. This phrase here, this key phrase, sure of better things. The writer of Hebrews likes the word sure, and he loves the word better. He's going to use it here the first time, and he's going to use it nine more times in his, uh, in his sermon or in his letter. He says in chapter 7, verse 9, that we have a better hope because Jesus is a perfect high priest. In chapter 7, verse 22, he says, we enjoy a better covenant because Jesus guarantees it. We're inheritors of a better promise, chapter 8, verse 6, of sin forgiven and hearts that are made new to keep God's word. We uh, have a better sacrifice, not a sacrifice that offered daily, weekly, or, or the, like on the Day of Atonement, once a year in the Old Testament, but a sacrifice that was done once, once for all, final, uh, to telestai in the Greek in John. It is finished kind of sacrifice. We enjoy and look forward to a better possession than a promised land uh, uh, in, 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 in some physical place on, on the planet. We enjoy a better one to come, a better country, he says in chapter 11, verse 16, because it is a heavenly, a heavenly country, and we enjoy a better life. And not simply in the way that we tend to think of, like the shirt, you know, the shirts that talk about uh, what the, what's the shirt, life is, uh, life is good, life is better, or whatever. I'm thinking of a generic shirt that's seen all over the place. We tend to think of, your, you know, Uh, life now. But in fact, when he uses that phrase, better life, he's using it at the end of chapter 11, where he's going through what we call the heroes of faith, which he gets to the end and notes that most of the heroes of faith died in the faith and for their faith and were martyred in their faith. But yet, in spite of that, they had a better life because it was a resurrection life, just like Jesus And then he ends his book in chapter 12, verse 24, by saying, we enjoy a better word, a word of life. You see, we know that the word gospel means good news. If you've been a Christian at any time, for any length of time, you've heard that. And if you've been a Christian for many years, you've heard that explained. Gospel means good news. But it's a phrase, and as a phrase, or rather as a phrase, good news can feel worn out by overuse and hearing it a thousand times over the years. And because we've exhausted nearly every superlative in modern times, think about it, like we have a cup of coffee or a steak and we go, man, that steak was awesome. And then we, then we come to church and sing how God is awesome. But God is not awesome like the coffee and the coffee is not awesome like God. But we've worn out like all the words to praise things, excellent Uh, uh, great, good, awesome, best. And so it's hard to find words that fit the greatness and goodness of the news of the gospel. 
But the writer of Hebrews helps us by drumming it home with this word that the good news is better, 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 better in every way that we often think or imagine. Why is that? Because it is a salvation that we did not win and it is a salvation that we cannot lose. Can we say praise God? It is a better story than the one we would have for ourselves. It is a better, it is a, lost my mind with the, re, the next phrase I was going to use there. It is a better story than we would use for ourselves. And it is the very best news that we would ever hear or need to hear or that our neighbors, our friends, or our family could ever hear. Amen. Now, having called them beloved and said that he's sure of better things, and these better things we're going to hear over the coming couple months as we move towards uh, the, into the second half, we're going to hear how great our salvation is as is better, better, better. Here, he turns to, 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 in a very interesting direction after mentioning the better things. Among the better things he sees about them is this, that God is clearly at work in their lives. He says in verse, 11, uh, verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. This is the practice of finding the evidences of grace in one another. It has nothing to do, this statement, with earning one's salvation by works. Not in the least. God does not need our good works, as Martin Luther once said, but your neighbor does. And God has promised to bless us when we do so. These words go back. uh, uh, Think of the words that Jesus himself promised in Matthew 25. And he said, what you have done to the least of these, you've done to me. The book of Proverbs says, The book of Proverbs says that he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord. That is that God has promised that every act of service and love done in his name is received by God as done to himself. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews sees for them. They have served God's people and thus they love God. You know, in our unpacking of of grace and works, because we believe in grace. We believe that the gospel is all about grace, because we believe the gospel is all about gift. But in our putting together of grace and good works, sometimes we we can lessen what I might call here the grace of good works in our lives. We can, we can, we can uh, in attempting to magnify the grace of God, we might say something like, well, our works are just worthless, really. Or our, our righteousness, you know, there is, a, there is the verse, our righteousness is filthy rags. And when you unpack it, there's a sense in which that's true. But the New Testament believer has had the righteousness of Christ applied to them and the righteousness you now enjoy and that is being worked out in your life is not as filthy rags. It is in fact the power of the Holy Spirit working through you as you love the name of God and as you serve one another and when we do good works, our God delights in us. 
Amen? And our God blesses us. And our God blesses us, not because we're earning through those good works, but because he's working through them, he delights in them, and he's made a promise to us that he will reward everything we do in Christ's name. And so the writer looks at them and says, God is not unfair. God is not unjust. You have loved one another, and God loves you, and you are not forgotten. Amen. All that we see here, I love this. All that we see here is truly lovely. They are the beloved. They love and serve one another. There's this cycle and interplay of love to one another. One of the ways the writer loves them is to affirm the love he sees in them, their service for one another, and their love for God through that which is all sweet evidence that God loves them and is at work in them. And when he affirms that, he is loving them as well. We could encourage one another, especially in times like this, more like this more often. The question, the question of application is, is not what evidences of grace do you see in your own life? We're not really very good judges of that. The question is, what evidences of grace and the love of God do you see in the life of a brother and sister? And when was the last time that you encouraged them and let them know that you see the grace and love of Jesus in them and you are thankful for it? Amen? That's building up the body. That's serving and loving one another. In the next verse, the preacher's words become not only of affirmation, but of encouragement. That is, in terms of what the word encouragement actually means, which isn't just a sort of pat on the back and hope you're doing okay, but, an, but actually to give courage, to work courage in. To encourage someone is to get courage in them, in courage. And he says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And his, his challenge as he's comforting them is that as diligent as they are about their service, he desires them to be just as diligent about developing confidence in the gospel itself. That is what he means by full assurance of hope. The word here, full assurance, pleurophoria in the Greek, you know, we preachers have to say that just because we did the work of study. That word means nothing to you, but it sounds really cool, right? Like it just sounds like it means more. Pleurophoria in the Greek is an image word. And it basically means that something is fully doing what it's supposed to do in fullness. Like a ship at sea doing what a ship at sea should do, which is sail. But not just sail kind of uh, 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 lackadaisically, but a ship whose sails are unfurled and full and the wind is in them and the ship is cutting through the water and the ship is headed in a direction. Another image would be like that of a, of a fruit tree, which would be, should be doing what a fruit tree should be doing, which is laden with fruit and bearing fruit. My, uh, my mower did not have pleurophoria recently. And... Um, I had to do a little work on it to bring it about so that it would be doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, turns out I'm not very good at like keeping up on all my equipment. Not exactly the mechanic-y kind of yard, you know, tree 
uh, shade tree mechanic kind of guy, but I've got a yard, got to learn to take care of my stuff. And I won't tell you how long it's been since the mower's blades have been sharpened, as in never when Troy built, I bought it. It, you know, that's how sharp, you know, how long it's been. So it's not been mowing very good. And I thought I need to do this. It's a headache, but I've got to take it off because the belt had shredded. And so I take it off and I couldn't get it off. I have to go over to my dad's at 41, I'm still needing dad's help. And dad helps me get the right wrench because we've got to get this huge long lever so that we can loosen this bolt that's so tight. A wrench, a regular wrench won't do it. So we, we get this uh, blade off there and lo and behold, we discover why the mower doesn't have pleurophoria, the fullness of what it's supposed to be and do. And that is because the blades are as sharp as spoons. And so... 15 minutes each side on the grinder, put it back on, and the yard looks great. Getting the mower back to Playrophoria took a bit of diligence on my part. It had all the stuff. It had all the equipment, but I had to exercise. I had to prep. I had to take effort, energy, and put in labor. What the writer is longing for them to have is a full faith, something that might appear quaint today because it's so earnest, a confident faith, which is what hope is. Because hope, hope is not a chance. Hope is not, we use the word um, hope like a wish, like, well, I hope so, or you know, I, I, they don't have a hope or, or something like that. But hope rightly understood is a sure faith in a certain future because you believe it's true. And such a faith must be worked on and kept diligently. The question for us today is where do you need to sharpen your faith? Where do you need to to bring more definition to your hope? Because we're just like that mower blade, aren't we? We're just like that. As we go through life, we, as we go through our days and our weeks, we get dull. We get notches in it. We get worn. We get well used and tired and weary. And so we need sharpness, definition brought back. And we need to settle over and over again where our faith is and what our hope is. The the preacher here of Hebrews continues his call to diligence in the very next verse, verse uh, 12. And he says, you know, show the same earnest to have, have the full assurance of hope until the end, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The diligence that they're called to is the opposite of the sluggishness that they're called to put off. And it's translated in many places by most of the synonyms you can think of. Slack, sloth, lazy. No one, no one likes to be called lazy. But let's be honest. All of us, as we grow dull, grow weary and become and can become negligent, apathetic indifference. That's the kind of laziness that he's talking about. He's not talking about a sort of intentional laziness. He's talking about the kind, the kind of sloth, the kind of spiritual or mental sloth that happens just from weariness 
and being tired and, and of persevering and of not resting. It's a kind of apathetic feeling when you just can't bring yourself to do something. Everybody knows, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a Saturday morning kind of laziness. By the way, not all resting on Saturday is laziness. I didn't mean to say that. But being tired of mind and bored of it. And we all know this feeling. As John Calvin says, there is nothing we are more prone to than weariness in well-doing. I think it would help us to be honest in this season. This is probably where many of us are. That we are experiencing a kind of weariness in well-doing. I didn't say this in the first service, but, but when I went through this text and I saw how much it talks about hope, and when I looked at my own experience over the past couple months, and I was just honest and confessed, I haven't been very hopeful. And I'm honest about the, the, the crisis that we find ourselves in. But brothers and sisters, wearing a mask is not a deep burden. Amen? Thank you. Dealing with, with changes in schedules, it feels so much harder, I know, than it ought to. But brothers and sisters, we have a hope. We are not defined by these times. We may feel frustrated about all kinds of things that we can't do anything about, but we have a greater hope in the midst of this. The gospel is absolutely still true, praise God. In the midst of this, the hope that we are looking forward to ought to be even sweeter because we look forward to better things, praise God. And we ought to be those who, in a time like this, are hopeful. And that means that we have to resist what the writer is talking about, the sluggishness and the sloth and the slackness that we are tempted to. We are called to resist by imitating the faith of others, especially those who've gone before, who have endured to the end. We can probably think of those folks who we know who have endured to the end. And if we thought about their lives, we would know that they lived through trials and, and difficult periods, that they lived through times like we feel that we're living in and crisis. And they finished their race in faith and hope and in joy. And we're called to imitate. And in the notion of imitation is, is something that we know about faith already. That is that faith is more than an idea and faith is more than just mere assent to a set of facts. But faith is a kind of trust that can be and must be put into patient practice. It's a commitment of trust over a lifetime. Or as Eugene Peterson put it, it's a it's a long obedience in the same direction. John Calvin, in his commentary on these verses, calls what the writer of Hebrews is calling us here to as progress in the faith. And the Puritans would call it experimental faith, which really sounds kind of weird. But what they meant by experimental faith is that the kind of faith that the Bible calls us to is, the, is, the, is that it is a faith that is put to the test of experience. It is a faith that is experimented with. It is a faith that is exercised and practiced, that, that produces the kind of obedience that follows trust. Now, they did not mean by that growth and personal perfection, 
Puritans and, and John Calvin resisted strongly the notion that we could ever be perfect in this life or that we could ever earn uh, 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 righteousness by our good works. Nor did they mean what we sometimes might understand as progress today in the sense of more like that we could learn more and newer things that other people don't know about the gospel or didn't know when the gospel was proclaimed. No, he, he doesn't mean progress. When John Calvin talks about this, he doesn't mean progress in the faith in that way. What they meant was, and what the writer here is painting a picture of, is that as a believer believes the gospel and lives the life of faith, they will grow in confidence in the gospel over their life. Now this means not so much, as I think this is what we can easily do, this means not so much that our feelings of faith or the, or the intensity of our emotions about our faith get stronger, although at times I would expect that that, that, that happens, but rather that our faith increasingly sees God and the gospel as greater. C.S. Lewis uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, once again, like every great sermon, has to include a quote by C.S. Lewis, right? He illustrates this really well in the second book in, in Prince Caspian, when the Pevinci children return to Narnia once again, and they don't see Aslan for a, for a long time. The only one that can see him is Lucy, the youngest daughter. And when Lucy encounters Aslan the lion, who in the story is a type of Christ, she says to him, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says to her, that's because you are older, little one. Not because you are, she questions. And he says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. It's not when we, he calls us to progress in the faith and growth and earnestness and the full assurance of faith. He is not talking about us strengthening the intensity of the feeling of our own faith, but that as we walk with Christ, as we know him more, his esteem grows in our eyes. Our feelings don't necessarily get stronger, but our understanding of Jesus is that Jesus is stronger than we understood him to be before. Amen? That he is bigger, better, and stronger. And this growth, what he's telling them, is a sure thing. It will happen as you walk and as you journey with Christ. Thought of this, just think about the way that maybe if you're a, like, if you're, you know, the adults in the room, think about the way your understanding of your parents changed. Like when you were a teenager, you didn't realize that they knew anything, but later on you realized that they did just as you lived and kept going. Or the way that as, as you love one another, husband and wife, you grow in each other's eyes. Not that you always have the same intensity of feeling, but the love is always growing. And this growth is a sure thing because like every other aspect of the gospel, the progress of faith is guaranteed because our faith rests not on itself, but on the one who promises, which is God. And so the question of, these, of this verse is, 
Are you making progress in the faith? Which is not saying, is your prayer times getting longer, per se. It's not saying, are you reading more chapters of the Bible every day? We immediately tend to go to those things. But are you filling your vision with Jesus? And is Jesus getting bigger, stronger, and greater in your eyes? You see, the era and the circumstances in which we live are quite different from New Testament times and the, and, and the kind of wandering that the writer of Hebrews is warning them against. But the temptation to go our own way is still the same. In New Testament times, it seems that the temptation was to something definite to replace the work of the gospel, to become, uh, to become allied with Rome and its way of living on the one hand or an acceptable religion that would mean you wouldn't be get persecuted on the other hand, like uh, Judaism or one of the celebrated Greek philosophical schools, because people weren't getting in trouble or persecuted for believing or living those kinds of things. But in our day, we are not tempted to leave these better things for something definite in the way that they were. At least not, much, not, not many of us are. No, we are tempted to return to the ambiguous age of doubt in which we live. An ambiguity that would allow us to sound deep and profound while making ourselves the center of our busy and over-entertained lives. See that song that I quoted at the beginning, Some Nights? The singer Nathan Roos said that his song was about just being someone different on any given night. And I think we can all relate to that and the questions that it sings about at some point in our lives. Yet to me, it seems like an illustration of the era in which we live because it is filled with intense feeling, but all of its convictions are ambiguous. ambiguous. But even in an age of doubt, the haunting questions linger, and how shall we answer them? When we are tempted to give in to the age and mouth of the words, oh Lord, I still don't know what I stand for, are we going to answer that with another song? with a better song? Are we going to confess our doubts to a brother and sister in Christ and confess our sins to a brother and sister in Christ to hear a voice speak back to us and say, I am sure, beloved, of better things for you? Are we going to stop making ourselves the measure of all things and lift our eyes from ourselves and look upon Christ Jesus? We need to answer our feelings with deeper convictions, and our emotions with greater thoughts. In response to that song, I thought of a song by Maverick City, whose song Promises we sung today, which is an awesome song. really goes well with the next, the next part of chapter 6. And another song that Jonathan Hill shared some time ago on a playlist on Spotify that's called it, You Keep On Getting Better. And it says, You Are Good. In the morning I'll sing, you are good. In the evening I'll sing, you are good. You are good to me. You keep on getting better. And it repeats that last line about a thousand times. But when you understand what it's saying, you can keep on saying it forever. Does God actually get better and better? Not at all. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in our, in our eyes, in our hearts, in our minds, as we sing to the Lord in the morning, you are good. 
As we sing to the Lord in the evening, you are good. Christ will rise higher and higher in our esteem, and God will loom larger and larger in our vision, and we will grow more sure, not of ourselves, but of the promises of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the better word of the gospel. We thank you for a better hope that we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to to embrace what these words call us to, a full assurance of hope, an earnestness and a diligence because it's based on your promises and you will keep your promises. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in us now. In Jesus' name, amen.